The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd ask you, if you would, to take your copy of God's Word and open them to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. Uh, We're taking a little bit of a break from our new series of messages on the Spirit of Christ to speak to you on a different topic today. Today the church is observing the Lord's Supper, and as you can see by the graphic that we have on the screen, that this observance is also known as the Communion. And there are two emphases in this word communion. The first and the primary emphasis is the communion that we have with Christ. We have fellowship with him through the symbolism in the supper of his body and his blood. We have become partakers by faith in Christ, by believing in him, and what this bodily sacrifice that he did Uh, how it took care of our sins, and this saving faith that we express is, in fact, a gift of God resulting from the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts. The bread and the cup that we partake of today symbolizes Christ's body and his blood, and I want to emphasize that it is through Christ and not through these symbols that we enter into his righteousness and His righteousness becomes our justification, and we're joined to him when we are justified. Now, the second aspect of communion is probably more familiar to Christians, and they think maybe this should be the primary emphasis or believe that it is. And they they say that the communion is a, a fellowship with each other, that we are united to Christ by faith. We have this common bond in Christ that unites us to each other, and therefore we come to the Lord's Supper for our communion with each other. Well, both of these are certainly a part of this, this story of the, of the Lord's Supper. It's part of the meeting, but I believe that the scriptures would teach us first and foremost that it is the believer's union with Christ that comes before the union that we have with other Christians, or more specifically, the union that we have with each other as we are members of the church, of the Lord's church, the same Lord's church. The supper is, in fact, a church ordinance. So both are involved, of course. We, we have our communion with Christ and our communion with each other. Now, our text verses today are one of four accounts of the supper that Christ observed with his disciples shortly before his death. Three of the accounts are in the gospel records. The fourth is a special revelation that was given to Paul that he told the church in 1 Corinthians. But now if you'll look in your Bibles at Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse number 17, this is the first and the earliest account of the supper. In verse number 17, it says, Now the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to such a man, and say unto him, The master saith, My time is at hand, I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. Now when the even was come, he sat down with the twelve. 
And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou hast said. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and brake it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out unto the Mount of Olives." Today's message is part one of three, entitled The First Supper. Now, since it is part one, you may wonder if uh, on the following two Sunday mornings that I'll preach parts two and three, and the answer to that question is no. Uh, This will be quite unusual because part number two will not come until October when we observe the supper again, and then the third part of it comes early next year in January. Uh, so we're kind of spreading, the, spreading this sermon out, and uh, you'll need to hope keep it in your mind. I really don't think that this sermon will be that memorable to you. I hope it's a good sermon, but probably you won't remember it all. So we'll just come back in October, and we'll do a little bit of review with what we've said today, and then we'll pick up the second part of the message. In this section of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus moves towards the event that is the pinnacle of his work in the redemption of man. Now, you've heard me speak many times about how the Bible is the revelation of man's redemption, going all the way back to the very beginning in the book of Genesis, where uh, the promise of the Messiah is given there. And through the entire Old Testament, it's always this looking forward, the looking forward to the Messiah that is to come. And here we are in the New Testament, in the book of Matthew, and the way has been prepared. John the Baptist has appeared. He has announced the coming of the Messiah. And now Jesus has been through three years of his public ministry, and here he comes ready to go to the cross. And I repeat that this is the pinnacle of the redemption of man. The cross is that central event of salvation because it was at the cross that Christ met the demands of God's justice, of his holy law. The cross was the instrument of death in which our Lord took the punishment that we deserve, that all of us deserve. The cross is the pivotal point. And without it, we have neither a scriptural death of the Messiah, and neither do we have a resurrection of a crucified Savior. Now, Christ on the cross is a scene for which we must be eternally grateful. And it is the reason that I stand here before you today. Because Christ died on the cross and because he arose from the grave, I can come here today and I can speak to you the gospel of Christ, the good news that he saves people from their sins. So we, th- we think of this, and uh, it is extremely important for us to recognize that the cross was such a pivotal point 
that Jesus said his people need to memorialize it. Now, we often talk about the cross and we sing about the cross and preach about the cross, but we, we find in the supper that the Lord wants us to go beyond just the preaching of it. He wants us to have a visual representation of this rite that vividly pictures his suffering and his death. And this is what Jesus did on the night that he was betrayed. Before he went to the cross, he sat down with his disciples and he gave them this beautiful emblem of his death that we now know as the Lord's Supper. And so before his death, he gave his disciples the sign. He gave them the picture of his death. And then he said that the church is to observe this sign as a lasting memorial of the work he did, that marvelous work that he did on the cross of Calvary. And in these verses that we've read today, he gave the sign that signaled the fulfillment of the Old Testament Passover. Now you'll notice that our message today is titled, The First Supper. Most commonly, when we come to these scriptures, we speak of it as the Last Supper. Leonardo da Vinci's painting is of the Last Supper, not the First Supper. And so we may wonder, what is the difference? Why Last Supper? Why First Supper? Why would you choose that? Well, of course, it is the last meal that Jesus ate with the disciples, excepting, of course, when he met them after his resurrection. He did have a meal within them. But this is the last meal that is the the Passover, the last Passover that he observed. Now, after his death, another Passover meal was never needed. But you'll find as you read the scriptures that his disciples did continue for a time to observe it. It continued to represent a memorial of Israel's past deliverance from Egypt. But the cross, though, the cross and the resurrection were the fulfillment of the Passover's meaning and its prediction. There is no need for a Passover today. We don't have the need to speak of the Christ who is to come because Christ came. Christ came and he died and he ascended back to heaven. But as I've just spoken, the Lord saw fit that we needed to memorialize what he accomplished. Now, no longer does a lamb need to be killed because the lamb of God came and died. And so instead of the last supper, the supper on the night that Jesus was betrayed became the first Lord's Supper. I'm often amazed when I am preparing sermons how the Lord will work in the hearts of his people, how a sermon may be effective to some when I think that when I look over the crowd that no one's really listening. But then I find out as someone goes out the door, they will say something that I never knew would be, have an effect on someone, that that thing is what the Lord had prepared that that person needed. And so they will thank me that I, I preached the sermon and, and told them something. I remember the, the, when the Kaczynskis left uh, last month that Lisa handed me a card and the card was thanking me for all the teaching that they had received through the years. And she said that almost every Sunday morning they came to church, they found out something that they didn't know. And so she appreciated the teaching that she had been given. So I am aware every time that I approach the pulpit that it is a privilege to stand here and preach. This is a a wonderful privilege to speak to God's people, but most of all, I understand this as well, that I have no ability to open the understanding of any person. That is not up to me. 
All that I can do is give you the Word of God. And then the Holy Spirit is the one who, who brings that to the mind and makes it effectual, makes the understanding come to the person and be good for the hearing of the listener. I realize as I prepare messages that the selection of topics is guided by the Holy Spirit. And I have to say that I really do believe this is true today because I think that this supper that we observe today may be one of the most important in my time as a pastor. It may not feel very much different to you. I don't know, but it does to me. There's no doubt that we have the first aspect of communion. As believers in Jesus Christ, we, we are united to him. We'll have that fellowship with him as long as we live, and then after we depart this life, we'll fellowship with him in the joys of heaven. But I think the thing that we're missing today, and what we don't have, is the full enjoyment of the second part. And that is that we miss the communion that we have with our dear friends who have left us. As of this date, many of them are still members of our church. For those of you that are not members and haven't been around very long, we had a, a large number of our people move away to different parts of, of the country. We no longer have that fellowship with them. We can say that we do have communion in the Spirit. I think that's true. But that is not the intention of the Lord's Supper as it concerns the church. It's not the communion that we have in the Spirit with people who are far away, but it's the communion that we have with those who are sitting in this room. Those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ as we come together and care for one another, take care of one another, uh, this is a responsibility that we have towards each other. And so we are a group that is unified in Jesus Christ. And so rather than go away today and say, well, it's just not as good as it used to be, we just don't have those folks that we love so dearly with us, no, I think what this ought to do is draw those of us who are left here closer together and draw us to the place that we, we want to be sure that we're not overlooking anyone in the work that we have to do and that we are closer to each other and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so rather than lament what we don't have, let's rejoice in what we do have. We still have Christ. We still have the Lord's Supper. We still have each other. And so we can fulfill the Lord's Supper's meaning, going away, rejoicing in that bond, both with our Lord and with each other. So I think that this observance today is supremely important for us. There are two ordinances that are given to the church, and since there are only two, the lack of any others points to its significance. You know, I used to think that no one would ever question how important that baptism is, but I've come to find that some Christians don't think that baptism has very much significance at all. I'm troubled that we should go so long uh, from the t last time that we took a believer into the waters of baptism and bring them into the fellowship of the church. Now, we rejoice when the baptistry over here is filled and, and we, you watch as we come down the steps and get into the water and I plunge that believer in Jesus Christ underneath the waters and I raise them again in the likeness of Christ's death and his resurrection. And each time that we have a baptism, the whole church breaks out in applause because we are pleased that another child of God has been received into the fellowship of the church. 
I don't know if they clapped over baptisms in the New Testament. I don't know if they did that, but I feel quite confident that whatever their custom was, they had a way of expressing their joy that another person was willing to be identified with Jesus Christ. But somehow, in many churches, the joy of remembering Christ's death in the supper is not as readily expressed. It's not expressed in the same way. I've seen many tears during the supper. I think that's probably a more appropriate response than clapping. It's somber. It is serious whenever we think of the cruelty of the Lord's death. I think that when we approach the supper, we, we should have a lump in our throat as we think of this gracious act of God in giving his own son for us. I, I, I think there should be a, a churning in our stomachs as we contemplate that Jesus was willing to come to this earth to subject himself to such cruelty and to die for people that were disobedient, people that were dead in their trespasses and sin, and yet Christ was willing to give his life. That... that ought to affect us, I think, somewhat internally to think about that great love that he has for us. A few years ago, it was our practice to have the supper at the beginning of every month. I know there are some churches that have it every Sunday. And I don't criticize that because it's the church's right to set its frequency however they choose to do it. Uh, the church decides on the frequency. But I began to think about it regarding us, and I saw how frequent repetition of it seemed to me to take away some of the polish, so to speak, and made it seem less significant. It shouldn't be that way, but I suppose that human nature in that repetition turns out that, that that's what happens to us. I'm sad to say that what we were doing, or maybe more specifically what I was doing, was just tacking the Lord's Supper onto all the other things we did at the end of a Sunday night service. And so we quickly got it over with and we would leave the building. I felt that needed to change. And, and we needed to be more serious about it. And as a church body, we needed to be more prepared for it and grateful for this opportunity that we have to partake of this beautiful symbol. So we changed it. Now we have it at the beginning of each quarter. I think the change has helped. I'm able to prepare a sermon, a special message to accompany it, and we can take our time, we can concentrate on this one thing, and that is remembering what Christ did as we break the bread and pour the cup. And surely it is a beautiful emblem. The Lord was wise in giving us the supper. He knows that it's good for us. He certainly knew that if we obey and participate in the supper that the appreciation of his death would be frequently on our minds. God does know that we are visual. We like to see things. And so in a limited fashion, sometimes God allows us to see. Well, as I stress the importance of the supper, I don't want to go beyond what it is intended to be. Later we'll discuss this more at length, but for now we will not do as some do. We do not make the Lord's Supper a requirement for salvation. I don't have the power to do that, and I can't find it in the scriptures anywhere that says the Lord's Supper would save anybody. Uh, we don't call the Lord's Supper a sacrament. A sacrament is a means of grace, and we believe there is no means of grace except faith in the sacrifice. There is no grace in the supper itself, 
It's a picture of that which saves us. It is not the thing that saves us. And so we're not commanded to receive it because we need a different grace or we need a special grace, a grace that is more than believing in Jesus Christ alone for the salvation of our souls. Well, as we go back to this text, we concentrate on verses 26 through 30. The earlier verses that we read were preparation for the supper. And then beginning in verse number 26, Jesus began to show the disciples a picture of his death. The scripture says, and as they were eating. Let's stop there for just a moment. As they were eating. Why were they eating? Well, I think we should know the answer to this question. It wasn't the common meal that they had every day. Not one that, oh, we get together for supper because we're all so hungry. It's time for supper. No, it wasn't that. Verse number 18 tells us that it was the Passover. Jesus had the disciples prepare a place where they could observe the Jewish ceremony of Passover. Now, if you're someone who likes to study such things as this, you may look at some outside sources, and there you will find many, many different things that were observed during the Passover meal. Commentators and preachers will talk about various stages of the meal with all the little nuances of each. You can read uh, about how there were four cups of wine that were used at different stages. You can learn about the singing that was done in the Passover, the singing of the Hallel. Uh, But that's not what I want to spend time with today. Those things are interesting, but I don't think it is as important to learn what the Jews did in the Passover meal as it is for us to learn and observe to see how Jesus changed this old supper into the new and gave us the Lord's Supper. So let's make this our first observation today. You can write this down as the first point, and it's as far as we will get. Hang on to it, because it will be three months before you hear me on this again. Our topic this morning is the transformation of the Passover. The transformation of the Passover. Now, as I spoke earlier, most often this passage is referred to as the Last Supper. The famous painting of it is called the Last Supper, and it was Jesus' last concerning Passover, because in just a few hours he would be dead and without the opportunity to eat this meal again. The disciples, as also I mentioned a moment ago, continued to celebrate the Passover for a while, In Acts, we find that Paul interrupted one of his missionary journeys while he was in Ephesus to get back to Jerusalem to make sure he was there in time to observe the feast. But this is Jesus' last meal concerning the Passover because he would be dead. And and Acts is that transitional period. Soon Christians would not do this any longer. They would no longer celebrate it because the feast of Passover is not for the church. Now, for 2,000 years, the Jews have continued to celebrate it. But the celebration of it is hollow. It's without meaning because Christ is the new Passover that supersedes the old. The old is done away with Christ's death on the cross. Now, for 1,500 years, the Jews did celebrate it because God commanded it and it was appropriate. On the night before Israel left the bondage of Egypt, Moses was told about the Passover. Passover was the last plague on Egypt. It forced Pharaoh to release Israel from their bondage. 
The last plague was the plague of the firstborn, the death of the firstborn. And every firstborn in Egypt, including all men or all humans and animals, died on that horrific night. Now we might think about that for just a moment, and we're not talking about ten people that died. Nor are we talking about twenty or even a thousand No, we're speaking of multiple thousands of deaths and households all over Egypt. And we're talking about the people waking up the next morning to children that were dead and others that were dead and to fields of dead animals as well. And there was only one protection from that terrible death and it was a little innocent lamb that was to be killed and its blood smeared on the doorpost and the lintel of the houses. The lamb was slain. The blood was applied, and then the family would enter the door of the house, they would shut the door, and then they would eat the lamb. That was a very simple solution. And it was the only solution to avoid the death of the firstborn. On that night, the death angel came to the door of each house, and if there was blood on the door, the angel passed over that house, and the wrath of God was stayed. Then the angel would proceed to the next house to see if there was blood on the door. And if there was blood, he passed over that house and went on to the next. Now, in those cases, the firstborn inside the house was safe. But if there was no blood, then the death angel entered the house. He killed the firstborn of the family. I I, I don't know what that looked like. I don't know exactly how it happened. Cecil B. DeMille thought that he knew, and I... I think he pictured it in his movie, The Ten Commandments, as a green smoke or a mist that entered the house and whisked around the bodies. But if you've read the description of angels in the Bible, I don't think you would be impressed that that was the death angel. When David numbered the people, God chastised him with the death of 70,000 men. The death angel was there ready to destroy Jerusalem and David saw this angel and he cried out to God. He pleaded with God for him to stop. But at any rate, Exodus tells us that on this night there was a great wail, a cry that was heard all across the land because so many were killed. Thousands died because they wouldn't listen. Even Pharaoh, with all of his power, couldn't escape the death of his own son. In Exodus 12, verses 29 and 30, it says, And it came to pass that at midnight the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne unto the firstborn of the captives that was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle. Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. There was not a house where there was not one dead. Every family that has children has a firstborn, don't they? And so all across the land of Egypt, not a household in Egypt escaped. All of them were hit hard with the excruciating pain of the death of a child. And we think about that and we see why was God so relentless in this punishment? And there is a great lesson to be learned. This was more than a last-ditch effort to knock the props out from under Pharaoh so finally he would let the people go. Oh, something far more significant is happening there. The lamb was slain, and that lamb represented Jesus Christ. 
And it was to tell us that there are people all across this world that are dying and going to hell. And there is an answer for that. There is a deliverance from eternal death. And it's accomplished only by the Lamb of God and the sacrifice He made on the cross. The blood of the cross, the blood of Christ, must be speared on your heart by faith in what that blood can do. And when God sees you, When he sees that Christ's blood has been applied to the door of your heart, then his judgment will pass over you. And why does it pass over you? Because it did not pass over Christ. He took the punishment. He was crucified for you. And so he took the pains of the death angel by suffering eternal hell for you. And because of what he did for you as a believer, you will not face the wrath of God in the eternal flames of hell. Now that's a picture that was repeated every year for 1,500 years, Passover. But now we come to the time when the picture is to become the reality. The death of all those lambs for all of those years could not take away one single sin. Not one of those lambs was the true protection. The real protection was the blood of the Lamb, the only Lamb, that can take away sin forever. And that real Lamb is Jesus Christ. And so when he was crucified, there was no longer a need to picture Passover. Jesus ended it here on this night in Matthew 26. So what I'm telling you is that every Passover since is unauthorized. No need for it. And each One, each Passover every year celebrated today, diminishes the death of Christ on the cross. And interestingly, the Jewish Passover is bloodless. There is no lamb killed. There is no blood spread on the doors. And why is this? Well, the Jews don't believe that Jesus Christ is the lamb. And that unbelief sounds the death knell in every Jewish home. It's their ruination. They celebrate Passover joyfully, not understanding that they are more like the Egyptians that died than they are Israel that lived. And thus we have no sympathy for the Jewish Passover. And I'm not talking about Jewish people. We certainly do love them, but not for these rituals. We don't love the rituals. The next statement that I make is perhaps a strong one and not politically correct. But I I really don't care much about political correctness. I do care about being religiously correct. Celebrating the Passover today is a useless blasphemy against God. It's pretty strong stuff, and we can see why it is that the Jews were so aroused and so angry at the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they were because it stopped, it ruined about 99% of all of their Jewish practices, the religious practice. Now, I will tell you, and I would tell every Jew that I'd ever meet who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ, that ignoring the death of Christ for sin is extremely dangerous territory. You don't want to be caught there. This is the reason there's a sign over the entrance to our auditorium. that says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. But he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. This Passover was the Last Supper. However, the Last Supper was transformed. It was changed into the First Supper. It was the First Supper of the New Testament church. 
Well, his Passover was to continue until a real Passover lamb was sacrificed. So the Lord's Supper is to continue until Christ returns for his church. Now, let's take a moment to look at how Christ changed things. Verse 26 again says, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Jesus took the bread. The bread that they ate was unleavened bread. For those of you that may be uninitiated, unleavened means that the bread is made without yeast. It's yeast that causes the bread to rise. Well, they didn't use gold metal self-rising flour. Uh, There wasn't any of that. But they were familiar with yeast. They, of course, had yeast. And what they would do is they would preserve a, a starter piece from bread that they previously made. And they would put that starter piece into their dough. But on the Passover night, they couldn't use the starter piece. It's because they were in a hurry. There was no time to wait for the bread to rise. So God told them, you be ready to go, eat the meal with your shoes on, have your staff in your hand, because as soon as this news gets out of the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh will be anxious to get rid of you. And God worked to deliver them, and he wanted them out fast. Now, most of us as good Bible students, we think of leaven as a type of sin. Sometimes the Bible speaks of leaven that way. For example, Jesus told the disciples, beware of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he said that because of their self-righteous religious practices. It was sinful. But in the Passover, leaving out leaven was not about sin. They ate unleavened bread because they believed the Lord would quickly deliver them from the bondage of Egypt. They trusted his word, and as soon as the Passover was done, he delivered them just as he said. Now, the only way that sin enters the picture is that they were delivered from Egypt, and Egypt is a type of the bondage of sin. The unleavened bread, though, in the Passover was not actually tied to that particular representation. But as I told you, Jesus changed things. He took the bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. Now today, as we think about unleavened bread and the Lord's Supper, we do think in our minds about sin because Jesus was sinless. We put no leaven in there because Jesus was sinless. And leaven in other places of Scripture is a type of sin. But then Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body. And as soon as he said that, the disciples must have been in utter amazement. They've never heard this before. Never in any Passover meal did anyone say, this bread represents my body. No one ever heard of such a thing. No one had heard of having a symbol of the lamb that they were eating. They had a lamb, so they didn't need a symbol. But no longer would they have a lamb. We don't have a lamb in the Lord's Supper. The real lamb has been killed. And so in the institution of the supper, a symbol is needed that represents that real lamb that was killed. And this is what the bread does. It represents the body of Jesus Christ. Well, what did the disciples think about this? What did they think uh, the Passover symbolized? Let's start with that first. What are they thinking with the Passover meal? Well, take your Bible and go there to Exodus chapter 12. This is when the Passover was first given. Passover would be kept for generations afterward. 
And children that were born in later years would not have experienced the actual Passover night. And they needed to know why they were supposed to keep this feast. Well, this is what we do with our children, with the Lord's Supper. We explain why Christians do this. And the Jews did the same with the Passover. So we look beginning in verse 23 of Exodus 12. Uh, you, I know you're familiar with it. I preached on it just a few weeks ago. The 23rd verse of Exodus 12. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he seeth the blood upon the lintel and on the two side posts, the Lord will pass over the door. And will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you. And ye shall observe this thing for an ordinance to thee and to thy sons forever. And it shall come to pass when ye become to the land which the Lord will give you, according as he hath promised, that ye shall keep this service. It shall come to pass when your children shall say unto you, What mean ye by this service? That ye shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians and delivered our houses. And the people bowed the head and worshipped. Every time that a Jewish family sat down to the Passover meal, the father would tell this story of how uh, Israel was delivered from Egypt at the first Passover. So the meaning of Passover is just as Exodus 12 describes it. It's God who spoke through Moses and said, this is what you tell your children when they ask, what does this mean? When they ask, what does this mean? You tell them the story. Now, that scripture in Exodus 12 was in the minds of the disciples because this is what their fathers told them. They had repeated the same information to their children. But now, Jesus hands them this piece of bread, not a leg of lamb, and he says, this is my body. He transformed the meaning. He changed the symbolism. Now, I can tell you, that must have really jacked them up at first, because... It's, it's, it's upheaval of what they had been told by their forefathers for centuries. Here is a momentous change, and now we have this new supper with new representations. And that surely was quite a shock. 1,500 years of history was gone. They would never celebrate another Passover with the same things in mind. Now, it's said that during the transitional period of Acts, the disciples would observe the Passover, and then immediately they would gather the church and they would observe the Lord's Supper. Well, here is where things go awry. They know the Passover has been transformed. There is a false Christianity that has abused this scripture. They take these words, Jesus blessed it and break it, and that it was his body and they were to eat, and they take those words and they twist them. Now first, the breaking of bread is symbolic of a violent death. Breaking bread shows that the body of Christ was cruelly treated. He didn't die of a heart attack. Um, he didn't die as the result of a long illness. A chariot accident, that wouldn't work. Breaking the bread and drinking the cup tells us there was a violent death. And so when I stand behind the table and break the bread, I show you that Christ's body was violently broken, terribly abused. Now, no bones in his body were broken. The scriptures say that. But the flesh of Christ was mutilated. 
Now this false Christianity has twisted the meaning and they take the words that Jesus blessed the bread and they say that Jesus transformed it in a different way. That he turned the bread into his actual body. They say Jesus changed it and when their priest hold up the wafer and consecrate it and when they hold up the cup of wine, they change it into the actual body and blood of Jesus Christ. And they tell you that if you don't believe this, that you are cursed. That you are anathema. That means separated from God. And they tell you if you don't observe their mass, then you can't have the grace of God. And so they put salvation into this monstrous ritual they've created. Paul said in Galatians 1 that such perversions are a false gospel. Salvation is not in sacraments. It's not in rituals. He said if a person does not believe the gospel that he preached, faith alone and Jesus Christ alone, that person is cursed. Oh, is there a problem in this scripture? When Jesus said, this is my body, did he mean this? Did he mean that he was handing them a piece of his literal flesh? Did he give them a toe? A piece of his liver? Well, of course not. They're sitting right there with him. He was in the flesh. They knew that they were not eating flesh. Do you think the disciples would have thought anything like this? Oh, there would surely be protests. There would be a thousand questions if the disciples thought they were eating human flesh. And we read the scriptures and we find the Jews were confused on many things, but they weren't cannibals. And that would be your thought too, wouldn't it? I mean, would you at least raise an eyebrow if I said to you today, I've got a piece of my flesh for you to eat. Sometimes people take a pound of my flesh, it seems like it. But uh, you'd be really shocked if I said, I'm going to give you a piece of my flesh to eat. Now the disciples had a hard time with many things that Jesus said. So they would have been totally freaked out if that's what he meant. They expected and they believed nothing of that sort of nonsense. Well, the Roman Catholic says, though, well, the bread still looks like bread and tastes like bread, but it's really his flesh. And their defense only spreads another layer of confusion. How can it be real flesh and not look like real flesh or taste like real flesh? And here we find the disciples asking no questions at all. It is not in their makeup to accept anything without going around the table with every hand raised and asking Jesus all sorts of questions. So what is the solution to it? Only the most reasonable one. Jesus was speaking symbolically. You remember when Jesus said, I am the door? Do you recall anyone frisking him to find a doorknob? When Jesus said, I am the manna, the true manna that came down from heaven. Did anybody go up to him and lick him to see if he tasted like wafers made with wild honey? I don't think so. Oh, of course not. The Roman Catholic doctrine is a figment of the devil's imagination. It's preposterous. Jesus often used this kind of language. Let me just give you one more. When he spoke of his death and resurrection, we we read it in Mark 15 a moment ago, when he spoke of his death, he told the Jews, destroy this body and in three days I will build it again. Did he mean that his body was the huge temple and inside of him are all the vessels of service and sacrifice? Was he the building that the Jews worshipped? No, The Jews didn't understand what he was talking about. They didn't understand that he was talking about his body. And the trouble is they missed the symbolism. And and Roman Catholicism misses the symbolism. They take something 
they make something real that was never intended to be real and to be saved by things that can never save. Well, I think there's another interesting point to make. On this night 2,000 years ago, when Jesus gave the supper, he said, keep doing this until I come again. In 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul had this information. He gave it to the Corinthian church, and the church did as the Lord commanded. They celebrated the Lord's Supper, and all the churches did the same. And the point I want to make is that Catholicism did not develop their doctrine of transubstantiation, which means changing bread and wine into blood. That wasn't developed until the 13th century. At the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215, it was declared to be official doctrine. And this would mean that for a thousand years or more that nobody ever thought or knew that they were eating the flesh of Christ and drinking his blood. They couldn't have because no priest ever consecrated it as such. If transubstantiation is true, then neither Paul nor any of the churches took the Lord's Supper until the Roman Catholic Church corrected everyone in 1215. Folks, that's nothing but fabrication. It's a lie. It's a blasphemous lie against Christ. Now, I, I can't live with that. And I can't be nice about that. We must tell the truth about it. If you are to be saved, you must believe in the Christ of the Bible, not a Christ that's been invented by popes and bishops of somebody's church. Well, let me make another point that I hope you'll find interesting, and we'll bring this thing to a close today. Those of you that have been with us for a while, you you might remember that I spoke of this about 10 years ago. In the 19th century, there was a Canadian Roman Catholic priest named Charles Chinoquay, Like Martin Luther, he became very concerned about the practices of Roman Catholicism, and he began to question what they did and uh, how could he possibly support their hypocrisy and sin that had become rampant in that church. He was later converted to Christ, and he wrote a book entitled 50 Years in the Church of Rome. You can read that book if you like. It's available for free on the Internet, and I think you'll find it quite interesting. But Father Chinoquay, as he was known, began to wonder about this doctrine we were just discussing, transubstantiation. Now, he ministered at a time when conditions were not as sanitary as they are now. And one day he noticed after he had consecrated the bread, or the host as they call it, after he had consecrated and turned it into the flesh of Christ, that there was a a little mouse that climbed upon the table and began to eat the bread. And so Father Chenequi wondered about this. Did the mouse just eat the body of Christ? Now, you, you, you might think, well, that, that sounds awfully silly, but it was actually, truly, a doctrinal concern that they faced. In fact, this problem was addressed in the 13th century by Thomas Aquinas, one of the greatest theologians of the Roman Catholic Church. Aquinas, in his scholarly wisdom, had to defend this doctrine of Uh, transubstantiation and so he said that if a mouse eats the bread it somehow changes back into bread and he doesn't eat the body of Christ so I suppose that this means that a mouse is able to transform bread just as a Roman Catholic priest does the priest turns it into flesh and the mouse can turn it back into bread you can't make this stuff up truth is stranger than fiction So do you see the ridiculous places that you're led to when you mutilate the Word of God? Theologians must spend their time musing about whether beasts, 
Four-footed beasts and creeping things can change the body of Christ. Now, it's hard for us not to make light of this, but I understand, and you should, that it's very serious business. It is serious to observe the Lord's Supper. God's not pleased when someone takes this beautiful emblem that he gave to represent his son and turns it into that kind of silliness. So let's stick with the Bible. Let's leave Thomas Aquinas and the popes to their business with the devil. But here's the truth that you do need to know. Jesus Christ went to the cross. His body was beaten. His visage, his appearance, his his face was marred more than any man. That means he was beaten so badly that he was unrecognizable. And the truth is that he was willing to take that punishment without relief. He said that he could call 10,000 angels, legions of angels, to deliver him if he so chose. But that's not what he wanted. He wanted to die for sinners. He wanted to die for people that hated him. And he accepted that cruel death to die for people that cared nothing for him. And he wanted to redeem a people to himself and return us to the fellowship that we can have with God. And so he went to the cross in an act of mercy and grace that was like no other. This is the truth that you need to know. He was willing to do it for every person who would believe in him. He accepted the pain, the suffering, the humiliation of the cross for wicked, hell-deserving sinners. And I'm happy to tell you this morning, friend, that you can be saved by believing in his sacrifice You don't need to keep a sacrament. You only need to come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. In this we rejoice. It is solemn. It is reverent. We may shed tears. Not the kind of tears that we have for our friends leaving. No, these are tears for the matchless, marvelous grace of our loving Lord. The supper was transformed. The Passover was transformed. And the Christ of the Supper has the power to transform you. Blessed be God for the gift of Jesus Christ. I'd like for us to bow our heads for prayer. Our men will come for the administration of the Supper. Our musicians will prepare for the singing of the communion hymn. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now uh, thanking you for things that we've read in the Scriptures today understanding who Jesus is, what he did, his death on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. And now we come to this time of the supper where we memorialize what you did. And we come with our hearts heavy, uh, just burdened down with the grief that the Savior had in doing this for us, but then with the joy of having that burden lifted once we put our faith in Jesus Christ. I just ask, Lord, that you would bless your people today as we observe. And may we have you, your death on the cross, and the fact that you are coming again right before our eyes at every moment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.